The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good evening. I'm doing, I'm talking again this week about uh, the practice of sila, the practice of the precepts. And uh, let me just ask offhand if there's anyone who's not familiar with, if I talk about the precepts, if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, Let me also invite... Uh, questions and interruptions if if uh, something is has arisen and you want to ask about it please feel free to uh, go ahead so I'll review a little bit about uh, what I talked about last week I'm this is a series of four talks on the precepts the precepts are the basis for ethical practice in in our tradition and um, they f- they grow directly out of the eightfold path, the Buddha's eightfold path to the realization of the end of of suffering and dissatisfaction. So they show up as right speech, right action, and right livelihood. <clears throat> Excuse me. So actually, in some ways, there are more issues about ethical practice than there are about meditation in the in the eightfold path there's right mindfulness and concentration um, but ethical practice is is a central part of uh, of our practice and it's not often focused on because it's very different from the kind of moral practice or ethical practice that's done in um, in other traditions, and than we expect, in in pursuant in pursuance of the the uh, practice of the of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, there are five training rules that exist. Uh, in most Asian countries, lay people, uh, this is the heart of their practice: is uh, sila, the precepts, and generosity. And of course, we jump right in with meditation, but the the centrality of uh, ethical behavior is remains, <clears throat> but what we're used to the biggest the biggest uh, obstacle to our understanding the precepts is uh, our conditioning to think of these kinds of things as commandments as issues of right and wrong, and it's it's really deeply ingrained in us so that. The five precepts, let me just recite them really quickly. Uh, we'll talk about them in more, in more detail a little bit later. But, the, but um, usually they're, they're presented uh, in a kind of form like, for the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from taking life. I vow to refrain from taking what is not freely given. I vow to refrain from harmful sexuality. I vow to refrain from speaking falsely, and I vow to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that cause heedlessness. And right offhand, they sound like do's and don'ts, but they are so not do's and don'ts. Um, they're, 
they're uh, training rules for practice, sort of like I'm going to learn to play the piano, so I'm going to practice an hour every day. It's a, it's a rule that we set for ourselves. Um, it's not a matter if you practice 50 minutes one day, it's not like some horrendous moral failing. You just didn't practice for 10 minutes of the time that you committed to. Um, the precepts are intended uh, to function in, in a couple of different ways. Um, they're, they're tools for insight. So keeping the precepts in mind when you're off the cushion and walking around in the world is very similar to the use of the breath in our, in our sitting meditation. You know, we, we sit and we follow the breath for a few breaths, right? And then the breaths, and then we come back to the breath and come back to the breath. And it's the same with precept practice. We keep it in mind, and sometimes we're not practicing. We're not um, keeping it in mind. But there's a sense, often, often you hear people talk about breaking a precept. But if you have the notion of breaking a precept, it becomes a commandment. It becomes something, a, you know, a right or a wrong thing, rather than uh, an element <clears throat> for your for your practice. And the purpose of the practice, the purpose of the eightfold path, of course, is for the cessation of dukkha, for the cessation of suffering and dissatisfaction with our life. So the purpose of the practicing the precepts is that. It's for ending, um, ending suffering, or attenuating it in any case, even if we can't finally nail it down right away. So it's, um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's like, um, it, it functions in a similar way to, again, like I said, to the breath. Um, in our meditation. Um, and it's not, it's, it's about helping us see the impulses that arise that may not be skillful, that may lead to suffering. So they highlight areas in our lives, in our lives that are areas where we get, where we can get into trouble. I think, has anybody not gotten into trouble about, you know, out of anger? or greed, or in our, in our love life, or in our speech? Anybody not gotten into trouble on those areas? I mean, pretty much the, the edge where we, where we live. Um, there's a difference between, let me talk a little bit about the difference between a commandment and a precept, because a precept is just a rule that we adopt for the purpose of monitoring our behavior, and also it, it does change our behavior. So a precept can be a speed limit, 65 miles an hour is, a, is a, in effect a rule of, and you can say, because we have this, this notion that uh, um, you shouldn't break a law and it's a law, that you could break the speed limit. But you could also say, I just wasn't observing the speed limit. Uh, I didn't have it in mind. Or maybe you did have it in mind and just said, 
I've got to get to the hospital, 65 is not fast enough. There could be, there could be what we might call extenuating circumstances. But the idea is that if, you, if you're making a judgment, you have an idea about the way things are supposed to be. And with the purpose of the precepts is not to enforce a way things are supposed to be, but to make it possible for us to uh, relieve the dissatisfaction in our lives by not undertaking things which will make things worse for ourselves and others. So we can start by just acknowledging the way things are, which is what we want to do with our practice. So if you have a if you have a notion, guys shouldn't wear pink. That's a, that's a it's a judgment. It's an idea about the way things are, or the way things should be. I'm sorry. It's an idea about the way things should be, and it's very different from just the perception that guy's wearing pink, which is just a description of how things are. So we've got we've got. Um, We've got a, a practice rule versus a judgment rule. The other thing you could say about a judgment is that your, your commitment is to your idea about the way things are. Or the, I'm sorry, your commitment to the way things should be. That's when, when there's a judgment. I'm committed to, you know, um, guys shouldn't wear pink or whatever, whatever the, the thing is that you think is important. Interest rates shouldn't be higher than, or, you know, I mean, we've got a gazillion of them. I can't even start to think of them. <clears throat> but a practice rule um, can be of all kinds. My wife used to have a, a, a little practice that she would do as she would go out in the morning and put her hand on the doorknob. To turn the doorknob, she would say to, to herself, this could be my death day, just to remind herself of the of the presence of the transitoriness and just to keep that in mind. It's just as a practice to recollect. Um, you can set up different kinds of a rule of rules. One of the rules, a rule that I've been using for a long, long time, um, back in the in the sixties, John Cage taught a John Cage was a composer in the twentieth century. He taught a uh, a series at UC Davis where I was a student and I, I sat in on his class and he was, in addition to being a pretty wacky co- uh, composer, he uh, was also um, a very early uh, Zen practitioner. And during the course of the, the semester class, and I can't even remember, I remember one composition I did for him and that was it. The other thing that I remember was a statement that he said about a minimum ethic which was, do what you say you're going to do. And I thought, oh, when I heard that, it just it resonated with me. Um, and I just, I just have taken that on. And the consequence is I often find myself having to do things I don't want to do because I said I'd do them. But the other, the other part is that I'm really careful about what I commit to because... Um, cause <laughs> You know, it's just, I just, it's something now that I, I feel, I mean, just, it just goes with, it shows up all the time. Um, and that's, you know, that's a precept. You, it's not, it's something that, um, 
is done for my benefit and the benefit of others. It's the same with these other uh, five precepts. The precepts are totally embedded in the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's program for the um, uh, end and the cessation of, of, uh, of, of dukkha, of, of suffering. Um, it, it's in, an inseparable from it. So, um, if you if you are going to practice sila, it requires mindfulness to know just what's going on in the situation, to be able to perceive what's going on clearly as it is, not just to be judging it, but to see what's happening. And requires insight or wisdom, right view, to be able to interpret that. So there are times when. Um, you know, speaking falsely may be the ethical thing to do. I think I mentioned last week, you know, if the Nazis knock on your door and say, is Anne Frank here? You don't say, I can't tell a lie. She's in the attic behind the fake bookcase. You know, you you say, you, you, you lie. And that's mindfulness and wisdom in form your decision and your action. So the idea here is that it requ- the precepts require mindfulness. It requires understanding and right view to, ha- to create a, an intention to practice the precepts. And they're not really optional in, in the Buddha's program. It's, it's not really a one-fold path, it's an eight-fold path. And so, um, in the Dhammapada, the Buddha's, you know, the briefest description of his teachings is to avoid evil, practice the good, and cultivate the mind. And it's interesting that the behavioral elements come first. So, it's, it's not, uh, there are actually requisites to uh, awakening, and they, um, an awakening depends on our um, living in accord with the precepts. A fully realized being would naturally manifest uh, ethical behavior. Somebody asked the Buddha once if uh, everybody he taught got enlightened. And he said, the Buddha responded by saying, well, do you know how, do you know the road to Gaya? Gaya is a town in India. Do you know the road to Gaya? And the guy said, yeah. He said, and if somebody asked you for directions to go, could you give them directions? Yeah. And would, would everybody who you gave directions to get there? Well, only if they set out and 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 did it. And it's the same with it's the same with uh, the practice, the practice of the precepts. Hmm. One of the one of the precepts that the Buddha adopted is pretty interesting in in the uh, Sutta on the his awakening. He talks about how at at one point he 
realized that all of his actions were either for the benefit of himself or others or, or not. And he just resolved not to perform any actions that weren't to the benefit of himself or others. You could make that precept. When his intention was not for the benefit of himself or others, he was not going to. Well, you could do that. It's pretty steep. You know. Um, but it could be a precept of that kind as well. The precepts are, um, like I say, for practice. And in addition to providing uh, a person in the environment who's safe and honest and um, you know, you're, you're delivering, you're, and, and you, you yourself are uh, more available to what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, the precepts are also an insight tool, and they're a tool for for inquiry um, and investigation into the cause of dukkha and into into the nature of of dissatisfaction itself. So I think what I'm going to do um, is talk a little bit about them. Um, individually, and try to get a sense of um, how they might appear in our practice. The first precept is often um, usually presented as, those of you who've, who've taken the precepts, I always love the concept of taking the precepts. I'm not sure what, it always makes me sort of giggle. Um, but for people who are familiar with them and have been, have been taking them, it's usually presented as, for purposes of training, I vow to refrain from taking life. Isn't that, isn't that how, it, how it goes? It's not um, a huge problem in this neck of the woods, like it might be if you were taking this precept in Somalia. Um, <clears throat> I asked Gil, the, the Pali phrase is uh, uh, panatipata, and I asked Gil what the what the translation of that was in in uh, from the Pali, and he said it was to strike at. So, you know, this precept could be for the purposes of training. I vow to refrain from striking at. Sometimes I've heard it presented as for the purposes of training. I vow to refrain from harming. Have you heard that one? So sometimes it's harming, sometimes it's a specific measurable thing. I mean, harming someone is not always clear. Causing physical pain? Well, you know, when my granddaughter got her flu shot, she was not happy with that. But the intention was not um, to cause pain. The intention was to protect her. And, right, I mean, we understand what we're doing what we're doing there. Um, and this gets at something that we'll talk about a little bit more next week, which is, is the cultivation of intention. Because ultimately, the precepts are about cultivating, cultivating intention. Um, but striking at. You know, how is... How does that manifest? Again, it's as, if you say this is an insight practice, it requires 
that you are able to assess the situation. Suppose you're standing around at a shopping mall in Tucson, sort of just standing by a pole, checking your, your uh, legally permitted firearm, just to make sure that it's working, that it's clean and shiny, you know, just admiring it. And some guy walks up and starts to shoot people. You say, I cannot, uh, I've taken a, a precept not to take life. There's, you know, if you're causing suffering, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer here, but if, if you're going to, if your commitment is to relieve suffering, to come to the end of suffering, maybe you just have to swallow that karma and, you know, intercede, perhaps. Or if you're at Virginia Tech, the same kind of thing. There's, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a measure in the stream of our experience, so that the impulses that arise. I mean, you could be taking that action out of an intention to preserve life. And. It's a tough situation, but you know, I was out. I was out. Uh, I used to sail on the bay a lot, and you know, the 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 the, the tides are pretty strong out on the bay, and when you're in a boat, you just don't even feel it. And I remember out towards Angel Island once, watching a buoy just go sliding past in front. Like that, and as it did, it left a wake because my boat was going with the with the water, and you just wouldn't have noticed it except for the buoy that was still. So it's the same with the breath that maintains stillness, and it's the same with the precept. What it is is a marker. So you could have a a clear behavioral marker, uh, you know, not to take life. But, you know, you're going to drive down the Central Valley in the summer. You know, your windshield is, is the display for how successful you're being. Are you breaking precepts by driving down the Central Valley? You know, in some traditions, the Jains uh, brush the ground in front of themselves so they don't, they don't uh, step on anything and they drink water through filters so they don't swallow anything. That's a, that's a possible option, you know. Um, the measurable, you please. When I've studied precepts, I've tried to find examples that are a little less esoteric in my life, and to take the precept of not harming, I can harm someone with my words. I can kill someone, a little part of them, with my words. Mm -hmm. I can harm myself by eating chocolate cake. You know, well, okay. But there are lots of other, there's smaller ways we can cause harm Mm -hmm. that we can practice daily and see the benefits or not of Sure. Which is the reason I asked Gil for the translation of Panatipata, because if, the, if, if it means to strike at, then it refers to an intention that arises. And in a way, what we're doing is, is restraining um, impulses, certainly of anger and aversion, 
just to restrain, just to allow the impulse to arise and pass without acting out on it. Okay, so there's a tendency for us to think that when a desire arises, we have to either suppress it or act out on it. And we can actually observe it, and it will, it will change. Um, and so this provides, by restraining our behavior, by saying, I'm not going to strike at, or you can set a behavioral performance standard. Um, but you could, you know, the marker, if you're saying to strike at, the marker is your own intention. You feel that physically, you feel it, you know, you recognize it in your own, uh, in your own mind as conceptions, as conceptions arise. Um, The, the second precept is, for, is usually presented as, for the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from taking what is not freely given. Let me say something about a vow. This is just a resolve. It's different than a wish. For the purposes of training, for the purposes of losing weight, I'm, I wish I could stick to a 1,500-calorie-a-day diet. Not, not so good. For, but if you're, if you're right there and you say, look, you know, 1,500 calories, I vow not to exceed that. I'm just not going to do it. There's a resolve. There's a difference between a wish and a resolve. I wish I could quit smoking. I really wish I could quit. I wish, I wish, I wish. Or you can just say, I'm done. That's it. If you say I'm done, that's it, and you really mean I wish, <laughs> you know, so what's important is that, and, and you, you know, the precept practice is, is for you. It's, it's for you and, of course, for the people that you encounter. It's, it's the expression of your practice off, off the cushion. But taking what's not freely given, so restraining impulses of greed and wanting. And it, you know, there are... And ambiguous situations that require so if you're you know walking by a tennis court and it's dusk and empty and there's a tube of tennis balls you know they aren't given they aren't maybe they're lost we don't know but the impulse that comes from us to say oh boy three tennis balls would be um, I think I'll grab them. Otherwise, they're going to sit out, and it's going to—they'll be due overnight. They'll get soggy, and uh, boy, they won't be any good to anybody. So, not only I'm going to actually be doing a good job, I'm going to save these tennis balls. <laughs> Your mind could do that, or my my mind could do that. So, you know, it it applies to those kinds of situations, but it also applies. In other areas, so if I walk in, uh, my wife's reading, and I, I've been reading, oh, I don't know, Dilbert. <laughs> and Dilbert is really good. So I walk in, and I'm about to say, hey, look, at here's Dilbert. But she's really into whatever it is. And I could take her attention without it being freely given. She doesn't look up. You know, There's just that impulse. I mean, it applies... 
it can take you can take time, attention, you can take resources. There's it, it applies to a whole across you know a whole variety of domains. Um, you know, there's that impulse wanting that um, that shows up and w- please. Well, I was thinking about that tennis ball example. Um, would it be better off for this preset to just leave the tennis ball there and someone else pick it and just throw that and that works? Yeah, it's, it, it has to do with the quality of your own heart and your own intention. So, actually, that was I left the tennis balls there. Well, that's an interesting question. There's not a right or wrong here. This is a, this is an invitation to investigation. You know, and the and the investigation really the bottom line is: is this action going to attenuate or enhance dukkha, suffering, dissatisfaction? Is it going to feed my own, you know, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy? Or is it going to, you know, just how is this going to play out for me? In one situation, it may, it may be uh, more skillful to leave it. In another, it might be more skillful to pick it up. And you could even, you know, if it's blowing around in the gutter and it's clearly lost, <laughs> you know, you could, you, you could take it with a, with a resolve that I, I'll hand it to the first uh, homeless person I see. I mean, there are all kinds of ways of, of dealing with that. And the purpose of, the, of, of addressing the precept is to begin ethical inquiry. Because, it, because we're so used to, you know, we don't need ethical inquiry, we just need to know what's right and what's wrong. And we really want something like that to cling to. We, like, we feel secure when we cling. We, we know about not clinging, right? <laughs> yeah, please. And I'm wondering if that is why you're um, you're bringing up this idea over and over again that we we don't want to think of this as right and wrong. And I'm I have a sense for myself for why I don't like that approach, but I'm wondering if you want to talk at all about maybe why why it's not beneficial to take that approach. Well, because when you, when you, when you draw a distinction about right or wrong, you, you create um, a conceptual divide. You create an absolute... So you say it's wrong to speak falsely, but I can conjure a variety of situations like the Anne Frank situation where it's, um, uh, it's not skillful to speak truthfully. They're not telling Gabby, um, what's her last name, Giffords, that her aide was killed yet. She's recovering and can stand up, but they're not passing on that information. It's just not skillful. It doesn't, the, the purpose of our practice is to attenuate suffering, attenuate the dissatisfaction. It's not about being right or being wrong. Being right is usually a conceptual formulation that we then cling to. This is right, that's wrong. And then we don't even see uh, he's wearing pink. 
shouldn't be wearing pink. We just the the aversion shows up or the judgment shows up. Yeah, I see he's wearing pink, and he shouldn't be wearing pink. You know, the, there's a difference between seeing the balls in your court and thinking the ball should be in my court. You say, well, let's look at how things are. The ball is in their court. Yeah, but it should be in my court. I mean, it's really hard to pry yourself off that judgment. And so the judgment is, a, is an idea about the way things should be that we cling to. And when we do that, usually things don't cooperate <laughs> because things are not conceptually clear. We like the security of knowing what's right or wrong, but it also shuts off investigation. And the purpose here is to inspire us to look more deeply at our own intentions. And we'll talk about, about the intention, the cultivation of intention and stuff next week using, using the precepts. But the idea is to begin an investigation of that rather than just say, um, don't steal and leave it at that and hope that you know what stealing is. You know, there's, don't take what's not freely given. Well, you know, if somebody's fallen in the canal and there's a rope in the back of the truck, you grab the rope and you throw it out to him, even though it wasn't freely given. I would, I think. You know, somebody else might say, well, nobody gave me permission to take that rope as your friend gets swept downstream. So, so the idea is, is to be open to the situation and respond appropriately in a way that attenuates dukkha, that attenuates suffering, that doesn't make things worse. Is that, is that helpful? The third precept is usually presented as, for the purposes of training, uh, I vow to refrain from harmful sexuality. Is that how it's usually presented? You guys... Sexual misconduct, I vow to refrain from sexual misconduct, unskillful sexuality. You know, it's marking the fact that sexual energy is really powerful and it's really a great place to study desire uh, in, your, in your own experience. Um, and it's, it's not uncommon for, for uh, that energy to sweep us away and... Um, we probably all have got experience with that. The, in in the, the texts, it's usually described very briefly. Um, it's usually uh, elaborated in terms for monks. So you sh- monks uh, shouldn't engage in sexual activity with people, with, women who are underage or who are under the protection of their parents or who are married. And I think it pretty much leaves it at that, doesn't it, anybody? I think that's, those are, but we have to uh, somehow interpolate that, the intention behind that precept into our lives. So it's sort of, you know, I, I never quite knew what to do with that precept. But the words in Pali, kamesu michachara, kama, uh, which is, um, kamesu includes the, the, uh, root, the word, the bit kama, which is about sensuality. So the, 
some of the some scholars that I know like to focus on sensual and sexual misconduct. Kamachanda is the first hindrance. It's the the uh, uh, preference for for pleasant activity, the desire for pleasant uh, activity, for pleasant experience. Kamachanda. So so this um, third precept actually could be. Uh, broader, it could be about sensual misconduct, whatever that might mean. You know, um, it probably would include eating a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's in one sitting. <laughs> you know, it, it could, it could, but you know, um, it's an indulgence in in uh, in the desire for pleasant experience. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a whole list of things um, that he usually places them in the fifth, with the fifth precept. But you know, there's there's all kind of indulgences <clears throat> that we get involved in f- for the purpose of um, sort of moving the pleasant, unpleasant valence in the pleasant direction. So if things aren't quite pleasant enough, or if they're unpleasant, we can retreat to a fantasy world and, and do that, or we can um, eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's, or whatever our, our preference is. But the idea is not to just... Um, but to, not just to, to use sensuality as... Uh, as I guess an escape or as a, a veil for the way things are. You know, this is a perfect a perfect example of a precept as a koan. You know, if it does come, if we are talking about sexual activity, what it, what is harmful, unskillful? What was the term you used? Misconduct, you know, what does that actually mean in terms of behavior? It's sort of a, it's a koan, and the koan, it's a koan that you answer with your life, with your behavior. You know, you 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 resolve one way or another, and the purpose of the precept is, you know, it's a stick in the slow-moving river or the buoy in the bay. It's it's the kind of thing that 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 provides something to orient to. and for a resolve to be alert to that. The fourth precept is about um, about speech, and it's usually presented as for the purposes of training. I vow to refrain from false speech. There, there are four kinds of speech that the Buddha identified as. Unskillful. But there was false speech. There's divisive speech. That's speaking in a way to highlight division between people or to set people against each other to cause, you know, strife. Harsh speech. Um, which offensive speech? What what is harsh speech? Raising your voice. If you're if you're 
two-year-old is about to run into the street, I think you can't yell stop loud enough. <laughs> or even no, or hey, or, you know. Um, and the last is idle chatter. And you know, these are, these are, I mean, what is idle chatter? Is talking about the weather idle chatter? It could be a kind of bonding with someone, you know, or a reaching out to someone. I mean, again, mindfulness becomes important here to be able to know just what's going on and what your intention is. Um, so the, the precept itself is a tool for investigating your own relationship to, to speech. Speech is really tricky because... I don't know about you, but you know, it, once my mouth is open, it just—it just, <laughs> you know, it—it it, it is as as flighty and as quick as my my mind, monkey mind, jumps around from here to there, and my my speech can go on. I sometimes don't even know what I'm about to say until the words. You ever been there, you know? And you say, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this." Um, you ever done that one? You know. So. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've, uh, we've all been there too. Um, and so the restraint is basically, you know, we're, we're throwing our intentions out there in the world. And you, you're, you know, when you talk about the ability to cause harm through speech, it's very profound. We're incredibly sens sensitive creatures. You know, we can all be still suffering from one sentence that was said to us 10 years ago or longer you know and we probably have all got an example of one of those things that got tossed our way which is you know not even anything physical it's just we're just so incredibly sensitive to to the conceptual stuff now speech you know there are a couple of different Conceptual formulations um, can, can be describing things as they are, or they can be describing things as they should be. So if somebody, you know, screams, that, he shouldn't be wearing pink, you can respond to it as, this guy thinks people shouldn't wear pink. Or you could respond, you could resonate with the judgment and say, yeah, people shouldn't he shouldn't be wearing pink. You know, so there 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 are these different kinds of of expressions in speech we don't even notice as they as they flow out of us. One of the the default, of course, is to remain silent. If you're not quite sure, um, uh, it's it's it helps uh, sometimes to um, to just remain silent. Um, sometimes it helps to break things down into smaller bits. So in, uh, in Davis we have uh, uh, a precept support group that meets once a month. And this month we're working, we're wor working with right speech again. And the precept that we're working with this time is um, not to engage in self-promotion. 
in speech, unless you're applying for a job. But, but the idea is to, to take a smaller chunk rather than, I mean, write speech, my gosh, we, what are we actually even talking about? You know, um, we can read long treatises on right speech and it still doesn't help us encounter. But to, to resolve, okay, for this month, I'm not going to engage in self-promotion. I'm, I'm resolving not to do that. So when stuff comes up and you start talking about an event that occurred and you notice your tendency to inflate something or make it bigger or longer or more important or whatever, just notice it and let it go. So it, it, as a tool, it's a finer tool. You could say, one of the, we worked um, another month with just not denigrating another person, not, not speaking uh, um, about another person in a, in a um, harsh way, judgmental way. Just, just to refrain for purposes of practice. And what happens is, when you actually, if you say, yeah, I could do that, uh, and you give it, and you, you really try, you start noticing all the times when that starts showing up. So, you know, one of the ways to work with, with speech is uh, to, break, to break it up into littler pieces. And, of course, you can, I mean, you, you can be creative. I mean, these are, these are practice tools for your own purposes of your own insight. Um, <clears throat> the last of the precepts is, um, please. Um, about speech, mm -hmm. um, the priest said is to not speak things that are not truthful. Um, yeah. Basically, what if you're supposed to say something, but you don't? So it's kind of like, and then it's, yeah. How, how about that? Well, a notion about you should you're supposed to do something some way or another is a notion about how things ought to be. So first of all, it's a it's a it's a judgment about what you should be doing or shouldn't be doing. So the the idea would be then to look at what you're about to say and and examine your own intention. What are you trying to accomplish? And is it for the benefit of yourself and others? Could it, could it make things worse? And so the judgment, the, the idea is it's not whether it's right or wrong, it's whether it will make things worse, if it will increase suffering for yourself and others. And that's the measure, rather than right or wrong. So it's, it's not really about saying something, but, or not saying something, but it's about the intention behind it. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, and and next week we'll talk more about about the, the the intentions that we that we work on cultivating with these practices. But I, I agree with her that many times that I don't say something mm -hmm. is practice not practicing right speech. And how would it not be practicing right speech? Because I haven't stated my position. I haven't offered my myself to whatever the conversation is that I could be, you know, sitting back grumbling mm -hmm. and not saying anything 
And you or have, I could have, you know, a, a really constructive idea to offer, but have felt shut down in the past, and I'm denigrating everyone in my mind, and and not speaking. And and you have a feeling that it should be that you should be speaking, you should be bringing up, you should be expressing yourself. You should. I would like to maybe. Well, there's. I have there, something to offer. And you should offer something if you have it available, maybe. There's, there's, there's the tendency to feel we should be a particular way. And then, of course, when we're not, we feel that. You know, and, and we are how we are, and our motivations, our intentions are as they are. And when we say, I should be this way, I shouldn't be that way, and we are, we, we beat ourselves up. And we generally, my experience is, that in, in my own head, I'm nastier to myself than I would permit anybody else to be. Um, and when I say that to people, I say, yeah, they're like that too. So I think we all have a tendency to beat, beat ourselves up because we're not the way we think we should be, we're not as good as we are, we aren't as smart or pretty or, oh, God, you know, rich, or I'm just the list of things, whatever it is. You know, and we suffer with ideas of how we should be. They all always set ourselves up for suffering. So speaking from the back of the room, you know, it may be that it's um, difficult in some situation and uh, we could judge ourselves or we could have compassion for ourselves and for our struggle. And the idea here is not to say be a particular way. Don't, it's, we're, when we're saying, when we're practicing our, on the cushion, we're not saying be mindful. We're saying cultivate mindfulness. If you say be a particular way, you're setting yourself up for failure if you can't do it. But if you say let's cultivate this quality, well then we're working at it. We're practicing it. If you sit down to the piano and you say, play the Moonlight Sonata, and <laughs> that wouldn't work for me. <laughs> because I, I don't play the piano. I mean, you can't just, you set yourself up for failure, but if you say, okay, let's work on, let's cultivate that ability to play, you start where you are, and you, and you build from there. Please. Um, I've been wondering about the self-promotion thing, and um, I'm surprised I'm even confused about that, but... Um, is the problem with that speech that it's sort of exaggerating and departing from the truth? Ah. Well, you know, what it does, as a result of exaggerating, I had a great talk with my granddaughter, um, who's nine, uh, about whether or not exaggeration was lying. And... No, it's the the question is still between us. It's still open. Um, the problem is that it often leads to it, it comes from a feeling that you should be more than you are, that you're not enough, and so we try to make ourselves we promote ourselves, and so it comes out of a, a feeling of inadequacy that we can't just be with ourselves and things the way they are. We have to make them. We have to turn up the color and, you know, 
I don't know, I was going to use an imagery from Photoshop, but the idea is make it more brilliant, you know. Um, so it's expressing an intention, a wish, uh, a longing, that in itself is um, not pleasant. You know, and it also can get you in trouble. <laughs> Oh, I can do that. Yeah, no problem. Okay, well, here, do it. Uh, <laughs> you know. Sorry, it's me again. Well, what if it's like bragging, which you're not exaggerating, but you are just doing it because, like, oh, I'll check on my new car, check on my new car, which is, you know. Well, it's, not it's the, the issue here is lot. not, there's no bright line behavioral rule. The idea is to look at your own intention and what you're trying to accomplish. The purpose is not to be right or wrong. The purpose is to try to attenuate the dukkha in our lives, to try to, to, to uh, create the, the possibility of that for subsiding. And when we, when we find ourselves justifying this or justifying la- that, that's a sure sign there's some unease associated with it. We got one more preset to uh, to whip through and in, in uh, go ahead. I guess I was just going to sort of say the same thing. I mean, it seems to me that self promotion can doesn't have to be exaggerating. It, it doesn't. Can... It doesn't have to be. That's correct. That's correct. But it's but it it is putting yourself forward in in a particular way. Please. This is more of a comment than a question. I was thinking about or reflecting on what Kate was talking about. And it's hard for me to think that there's not a way to um, use the precepts to think of times when one should say something, and should is a wrong word probably here, Well, that it'll attenuate suffering to say something, yes. and it'll make it worse if you don't. I can't Absolutely. A dramatic example of we're meeting in this building in a valley, and the, I know that a dam has broken 10 miles up, and it's going to wash this whole building. I have an obligation, it seems to me, sure. under your principle. Absolutely. Say and, the, and, and it would, it would uh, be a good way to avoid suffering that's coming downstream. So you use that same basic principle of uh-huh. attenuating suffering, whether it's to say something, not to say something. That's correct. How you say something. Yeah, there you go. It's not a bright line. It's to look and see what your intention is. If your intention is pure and... Uh, clear, even if things go wrong, remorse is not what's going to show up. You might be sad, um, but you won't feel, uh, you know, you won't feel remorse. And there is a principle. The principle is the attenuation of suffering. That's correct. Well, that's what the Buddha said. I teach two things and two things only. Actually, I think he said one thing. But then he listed two, suffering and the end of suffering. I can't, rem- I can't remember. Maybe he said two things. But I, for some reason, I think he said, I teach one. Gil would know. <laughs> but there's a, there's, there, and I'm, I'll get to the fifth precept in just a second, but there's a, in the Bhikkhu Bodhi translations of that sutta, he leaves out the word only. But... Um, and, and I forgot to learn Pali, so I rely on, on people who uh, claim to read it. And, and a friend of mine who's, who's studied with Bhikkhu Bodhi said the word only is in there, is in the Pali text. So I teach only 
one thing, suffering, and the end of suffering, or two things. Please. Um, so there's false speech, divisive speech, idle chatter. What was it? Harsh, harsh speech. Yeah, there, there are ten unskillful actions, and three of four of speech, three of mind, and three of body. And the and the the three of body are um, killing, taking what's not uh, given, and harmful sexuality. So they're right right out of the precepts. The fifth of the precepts is. Um, uh, to refrain from the use of drugs or alcohol that cause heedlessness. That leaves, it leaves a pretty much wide open. One of the things I've, uh, and, and I think this precept is sort of, in a way, the flip side of the third. The third is don't, when things are not pleasant enough, you know, we think if we can make things more pleasant, we're going to make ourselves happy. And if we can't, we'll anesthetize ourselves somehow so we don't feel it. And we can do that through a number of, of techniques. Heedlessness seems to me, I'm afraid it's, it's a much more common condition than, than uh, <laughs> clear comprehension in my own experience. So I don't need, I don't need any help in being heedless. Um, but there's a, there's a, a real this is a precept where there's a lot of uh, morality that shows up. And when I hear people talk about it, uh, you know, people apologize for, oh, I have a glass of wine once a week with dinner. It's part of, you know, um, as if there's something wrong with... with and, and when Thich Nhat Hanh... Um, Offers the the precepts in a in a formal ceremony. Uh, the fifth precept is to abstain from. Just it's not even there isn't there is no ambiguity. It's just to just to abstain. And he has reasons for that because of the the destruction of of life and family that occur uh, that he's seen as the result of alcohol abuse. And really, there's no there's no denying that. <clears throat> but it's but there we tend to want to look for a bright line. You know, is one glass of wine at dinner okay? Two, five. You know, a half pint of scotch. You know, um, well, I you know, where's the line? You know, is uh, looking at sake and a, I mean. <laughs> Where is the he? This is this is again, and something. It's not about, you know, this amount is okay and that amount isn't. It's a, it's again, it's about your own experience. Does it enhance heedlessness? Often, <laughs> you know, but maybe not in all cases. There are stories, certainly, of Zen masters who come back from a night of drinking sake and are just as fierce as they were when they. When they went off, I have no idea. I've, I haven't encountered those guys, but I have encountered the stories. Um, but again, this is a this is a um, um, a rule to keep in mind. And the idea with these precepts is to keep them in mind. How do you know when you're heedless? How would you know? When you fall asleep, 
Well, that's certainly one way, yeah. <laughs> or when you say something that you think is innocuous and the person smacks you. <laughs> say, oh, gee, <laughs> what, what am I missing? Um, so these are the five lay precepts. There are some additional layers I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, next week. Um, there are an additional set of three that lay people take occasionally, um, and then we'll talk about the functionality of the 200 plus that, that monks and nuns can take, uh, and we'll talk about intention next week uh, and the cultivation of, of karma. So I got through five. <laughs> um, any, please. Please. It, it occurred to me that what you, what you are saying was sort of exemplified by the Obama state dinner last night, where Obama said we have to agree that there are universal, um, universal rights of every human being, and the Chinese president said we have to agree that there are different paths for different people. And in that case, we... dichotomy that, you, that you're talking about. Well, you know, this is... The, the practice of the precepts is, is the practice of the Dharma in our interactive life. And we spend a lot of time with other people. And so it has to do with bringing the Dharma into our, our off-the-cushion life. And this really is... is uh, just a huge element of our practice. And for me, it's just exciting because it means all situations are open for examination. And when you, when you respond to a situation in terms of right or wrong, how it should be or how it shouldn't be, you cut off investigation and um, you, you cling to your, to your idea. I'm, I'm, I'm recommending precept practice. <laughs> so thank you guys for your attention.